Welcome, Pudding People, to another episode of Everybody Loves Pudding. I'm your host, Ken Seymour, with your co-host, Richard Geiger. Say hello, Richard. Hello. Today we have a fantastic episode for you. We have a very special guest, an artist extraordinaire, Larry Elmore. Hello. Glad great, to be here. Great, great to have you with us, Larry. It's, a, it's an absolute pleasure. Uh, for those of us on the uh, on the gaming side of things, which would be me, uh, I have been around your artwork for a very long time, and it's helped to introduce me to a variety of different uh, different things that I would not normally have been uh, exposed to. And now I've been trying to drag, kicking and screaming, my co-host. Uh, Richard, into some of these things. No kicking, no screaming. <laughs> okay, maybe some <laughs> mild dragging. But uh, so just uh, just to kind of start things off for, for those uh, individuals that are listening to our podcast, because we have a variety of tens of listeners that may not be familiar with who you are. 20, come on. <laughs> but uh, so, uh, Larry, uh, would you say that uh, you would be best described as... Uh, as uh, uh, an artist that tends to focus on fantasy artwork. Yes. Okay. Yes. So, anybody that has seen a cover to the original Dungeons and Dragons uh, uh, supplements, anybody that's seen the Dragonlance novels, uh, anybody that has seen uh, pretty much anything within the gaming community, it seems mm-hmm. like you know, there's a very, very strong chance you've seen some of Mr. Elmore's work. So. <laughs> You know, when we were prepping for the show here, um, we were we did a little researching here and there, and we had a few we had a few kind of early questions that may or may not be some stuff that you've been asked before, but sure. it, it kind of struck us. So, uh, what I kind of want to start with on my question is, uh, or for a question I should say, is I saw that before you really got going with uh, with uh, being exposed to a lot of this stuff. That you were uh, drafted into the army and stationed in Germany, is that right? Yes. So, um, so was that kind of like in the middle of your training, or uh, was that kind well, of? No, it it came at the perfect time. I when I was in, um, when I went to college at Western Kentucky University and got a BFA degree in art and painting as my major, and um, Vietnam was going on. And when I had my senior show, well, I'll go back a little bit. Nobody really seen fancy art then. Well, fancy art didn't have a name then, okay? It was just weird art. Hmm. <laughs> this is in the 60s. And um, so I was doing, I called it adventure paintings, you know. And my instructors didn't know what to think about it. It was not what they wanted me to do to get a fine arts degree. I was looking like I was going to turn into a cheap uh, commercial illustrator, mm-hmm. what they called it, and I thought, well, if it's adventure art, then I'd like to do it, you know. Sure. And by the time I had my senior show, uh, it was one of the biggest turnouts that I think at least I was there four and a half years, and uh, I'd never seen a show like that because nobody had seen fantasy and surrealism much, and that's what I was doing in college, and. Um, and so it was so popular and so crowded we even had to post other student guards to keep my art from being stolen. At first I thought I was in trouble about something. I didn't care, but <laughs> there was so much going on. And then uh, at the last day of the show, um, they sort of have uh, their little 
tea and cookies things, you know, I had to be there and the place was packed and the head of our department said, I still didn't know if this was a good thing or a bad thing, you know, and, uh, and, uh, he said, the law department is here and the head of the law department would like to talk to you. And I'm like, oh, what's this about? What have I done wrong? You know? (laughs) And he asked me, he said, how do you stand with the draft? Well, this was in November. And I, I'm from a small town, so the, I was the old number system of drafts. That means they would draft up to like 250 if your number was that low, you know. Hmm. Uh, in a big city, if you had like a draft number of of 200, odds are you wouldn't get drafted. But my number was 54, and I was a small town. So the draft board that I told me, the old lady that worked there, she said, uh, you'll be drafted in January, hon no matter what. And I was supposed to go to, I had a scholarship fellowship to go to Pratt to get a master's. But I knew, I was going to forget about it because I was going to be drafted. Huh. And um, the law department guy, he says, the head of it, he comes over and he asked me about the driver. I said, yeah, I'll be drafted in January. He went back over to talk to his other two, you know, uh, teachers or professors. And then he come back and he gave me a piece of paper with a phone number on it. And he said, if you call this number and tell them, I told you to call, you won't be drafted. I'm like, are you kidding me? You know, I didn't huh. plan it's gotten killed. I had plans come back all messed up. And so I kept that piece of paper for the next couple of weeks. I live in a little scuzzy apartment and sat on the edge of my bed every night. And I'd look at that number. All I'd do is make a phone call. And, uh, and one day I thought, you know, let come what may. Uh, I just didn't feel right, you know, getting out when I had friends that was killed. Yeah. And so I got drafted, went to Fort Knox, and I got stationed at Fort Knox for my first year as an illustrator. And then my second year I went to Germany, and I saw castles, old villages, and mountains, and everything. And I flipped out, you know, it was really good. It's like just what I needed, you know, the visuals of Europe and while I was there I traveled around Europe some and got to see different countries and it all just fed my fantasy art you know and uh, uh, and then when I got out of the army Fort Knox where I worked there as an illustrator they hired me back as a civilian I wasn't in the army then and I worked there for eight years and started getting a little bit of freelance stuff published here and there and eventually I led to being published at TSR and then they hired me uh, they made me an offer I couldn't refuse, so I moved to Wisconsin. <laughs> you, you definitely got to go, go go where the the opportunities lie. So, yeah. kind of what what I was kind of wondering, you know, and you've kind of uh, hinted a little bit at this in in your answer. You know, a lot of uh, authors and artists when they have an experience uh, at, in wartime, it tends to affect. Uh, the work yeah. that they make in some ways. Do you yeah. kind of feel that that happened, not just from being exposed to environments that you might not have been exposed to before? But yeah, you- I always hate people that says, I disagree with people that says, the Army didn't teach me anything. The Army taught me a lot, just being in the Army. And I appreciated all that I learned. And it, it teaches you lots of things to be responsible to cover your butt, uh, all kinds of things, you know, that that a young person needs and it makes you grow up faster too. And, um, I didn't have a cushy life. We grew up in a rural area and, and, 
Uh, I worked hard. If I wanted any extra money, I had to work on a farm someplace, hauling hay and all this kind of stuff. And uh, I knew what hard work was, but the Army gave me a discipline that I needed. And um, and during the wartime, too, that affected you. And in the Vietnam era, I know in the, in the late 60s, um, it was confusing for a country boy like me. I mean, I didn't even know, really, that there was segregation till. Everything started happening in the late 50s and early 60s. Um, the war of Vietnam was, was not a good war. Um, uh, I thought everybody in the world was honest and fair. And <laughs> so during those 60s, I learned a lot and grew up a lot. And, and it seemed like everything just helped me become a more understanding person and really sort of key in with my generation, really the generation that followed. Um, I really think that people who's doing fantasy art in the late 60s and early 70s were painting for the generation to come. We were a little bit ahead and uh, because it took, uh, you didn't see fantasy art any place unless you went to a bookstore and looked for certain covers. There might be a Frazetta or a Jeff Jones. Mm. <laughs> that was about it, you know, um, back then. And then... Um, then, of course, when I was doing the work for Dungeons & Dragons, that just hit the pulse of a whole generation that wanted adventure and excitement. We'd gone to the moon. We'd, we'd you know, discovered, we'd been on every continent and explored it. And, you know, what was the next frontier? Where was excitement? Where was adventure at? And the best thing of all, adventure is in your mind. And D&D brought that for kids. And... uh and it really, I know a lot of people today that are late 30s, 40s that play D&D as a 12, 13, 14-year-old. And from playing D&D, their, their present occupation was a re- result of playing D&D. Some are writers, artists, fighter pilots, test pilots, doctors, lawyers, everything. It, it made them see there's more. Uh, you get out there and take a risk, take a chance with your own life. And there's just so many stories I've heard how the art of all that period really influenced that generation. And now here at D&D is selling more today than it ever has. The whole <laughs> resurgence is back again. Yeah. So it's crazy. <laughs> I guess I, I want to dig a little bit more in on the inspiration piece because... When you were younger and you were in high school, and then when you went to Western Kentucky to school, and yeah. like, where did the inspiration for the fantasy art for you come from at that point in time? Because I gotta imagine that, like you said, there wasn't a lot of it around, and maybe the environment no, you, really that you were in. The first, I guess, I know when I was a kid, um, very young, we had an old literature book around. I don't know where it was from. It was a big, thick book, and had a lot of stories. It had Treasure Island in it, and I saw the illustrations for Treasure Island. It just blew me away. There's such power, and, and it made me want to become a pirate. And it was N.C. Weiss paintings. I didn't know at that time who it was, but N.C. Weiss was a great illustrator. It was really almost a fantasy illustrator. Um, and that was, I mean, he died before I was born, but... His art was, uh, I really liked it. It, it. I don't know, it done something to me. It's adventure. And just seeing pieces here and there. Um, 
then when we played when I was a kid, we go out in the woods and we were all explorers. We was Daniel Boone, Davy Crockett. We was Lewis and Clark, and we would climb cliffs and try to get lost to find our way back home. <laughs> and it was all about adventure uh, growing up. And 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 I knew that once I was grown up, once I became an adult, the adventure was sort of gone. The kind of adventure I I liked. I know when I was in grade school, I wanted to be an IndyCar driver. I wanted to race an Indy 500. To me, that was be the most adventurous, adventurous and exciting thing I could do. But then I realized to become an Indy racer, you'd have to almost grow up in a family of racers and be trained at such an early age. I didn't stand a chance, but that didn't stop me from being a hot rodder and <laughs> running around and getting my kicks and thrills. And uh, I just liked excitement and adventure. And so... Uh, I was finding a few illustrators when I went to college. Um, stumbled across like Remington and Russell, Western artists. Hmm. Uh, Schoonover, some of the uh, those artists from what the Brandywine School Art, uh, Hard Pile. Um, all those people was like, man, that's adventure art. And then and when I was at college, one day I went to a bookstore. I was off campus, a little bookstore. And I saw the first Conan covers by Frazetta. Oh yeah, and that did something to me, man. It just—I can remember the day that where I was at, everything else. It's like an epiphany. It's like, oh my God, there are real warriors. And also, back when I was in grade school, um, my dad worked in a—he's uh, a sitting in a furniture store for a little while, and um, he had to take the money from the end of the day up to the boss. And the boss that ran the stores in New York. And he'd come to Kentucky and start a store and was doing quite well for himself, a clothing store. And on the way up to the office, I was there. I went with Dad to take the money up there. And on the, going up these steps to his office, on the wall was a big oil painting, original oil painting of a Viking longship at sea. I'd never seen a Viking longship. I didn't know what they were. But I just knew that that struck me with that dragon prow and the big sail. And I just stood there mesmerized. And I asked my dad... He was always well-read, and he was pretty sharp all his life. And um, he told me what a Viking, who the Vikings were and what they did. Oh, my God. That's that's the king of the adventure right there. That's the top. You know, who could, what could be more? And, and um, so when I got to college, I started going to the library at night, looking up Vikings, what I could read about them. And then one day I stumbled onto the Celts. When I found the Celts, it's like I found home, um, something inside me, like, that's who I'm hunting for, the Celts. Then I, well, I realized I'm Scotch, Irish, uh, English, <laughs> and just a touch of Scandinavian uh, in my DNA. And so I think it was just finding my blood. I just found home with the Celts, and I started reading everything I could about them. And this was in the 60s, early 70s. And... Um, yeah, in the 60s, and then 71, maybe. It's, I already read about everything I could get my hands on, and it was hard to find anything written on them back then. Was, and most history books didn't talk about the Celts well, even, or the Vikings much either. Even now, it's fragmented in a lot of ways. Yeah. yeah. Well, uh, well, now, I mean, I couldn't believe that one day they would have uh, a show on like the Vikings right now and Game of Thrones and and, and 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 movies and T 
TV shows like that. It's, it's unreal. And, and then they, and I also when I was in college, I found my first Conan book. I didn't even read the book. I sat and looked at it for like a week, just looking at the cover. <laughs> and the guy across the hall said, you going to read that book or not? I, said, I didn't read it. I didn't even think about reading it. I was just mesmerized by the cover. And so I made him swear in blood if he borrowed it, he would bring it back to me unhurt. I was going to tear the cover off and give him the book. He said, no, I'll bring it back. <laughs> so he brought it back. He said, man, that's a good story. He said, you should read that. So I did. I loved it. And about two or three weeks later, he said, I found some more books, man. And he said, uh, some dude in the English lit or something like that had read these books and told me they were neat. And he said, they're sort of weird. you got to read one, and then there's three more. I said, so he brought them to me, and the covers didn't do anything. It's just no. really blah covers. And I thought, well, I want to be good. And it was, of course, it was a Hobbit and Lord of the Rings. And so I read those, like, well, I was hooked then, you know. <laughs> yeah, yep. And I just needed more visual stuff. That's the thing. You could think like that about the adventure, thing, but there was nothing visual to look at. You know, you look in a book, a history book, it didn't show you pictures of Celts or Vikings much. It's just, you just didn't find it. Now you can just go online and search and give you everything you've ever done, just about, you know. Uh, but we, then you couldn't. Yeah. And you didn't know where to look it's either. On, you it's know? all on your head. So then, after you kind of progressed through college, you said you got drafted, you went over yeah. overseas for a while. Then you came back and were employed by the military as a civilian. You said for like eight years. Um, yeah, I was, uh, they hired me in, it was, uh, it was a GS-7, which was a basic illustrator. And um, I worked in a, it's called a printing plant. It was a building that that did books for the Army even the manuals and how to fight manuals. And they started redoing all the army manuals after Vietnam because all the old army manuals were mainly set up for uh, European-type fighting with, with armor and stuff. Vietnam was different. It was jungle fighting. Mm-hmm. And so they started redoing a lot of their manuals for a different type of war, not open warfare like World War II, but cramped places and you know different places. So... So there's a lot of illustrations in there. And so I enjoyed doing those, but I know I didn't want to do them the rest of my life. But at one time, after about seven years of working there, I could draw all the military tanks that we had in the field that day, which is about four different types of tanks, personnel carriers, and the Soviet tanks, T-62s, the um, uh, their, uh, personnel carrier um I can't think of the name right now. But I can draw all these from memory. I ever nut and bolt just about all of them from memory. And also the helicopters, Cobras and Huey, Scout, and also the weapons, AK-47, M60. I can draw all of them from, from memory. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, I've always been like, if I understand the shape of something and I look at it, I put it to memory enough to where I can draw it to where you know what it is. You know, mm-hmm. I've just been a... I don't know, maybe all artists that way, I don't know. But I could put things to memory quite well. And that come in handy as a fantasy illustrator because you might be doing an illustration of something in the mountains and the snow in the summertime when you got these illustrations, no reference. And back then you couldn't go online and look at stuff. So you just had to collect your own little 
uh, scrapbooks of stuff, torn out of magazines and things of reference material. But I, I always, growing up, when it snowed, I would go out, play in the snow, but I would walk through hills and hollows and, and just studying the snow, just how it, you know, the light affected it, how it was on trees. I, just, I would look at trees up close and look at how moss grew on them and all these little things like this, and I just put the memory. Uh, it, I didn't, I don't think I intentionally put the memory that much, but I could remember it. Now, names and stuff, I can't remember crap. <laughs> 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 or numbers, uh, but visual things. And so that really come in handy. So I had to illustrate a story of a cover of something. Well, I could just pull out all these shapes and stuff out of my mind, you know, that what I'd seen from memories. And uh, that helped me a lot, I think, really did. Well, even in something as scary as, as that wartime stuff, that's amazing the amount of artistic uh, artistic stuff that can go out of that. Just You're talking about the AK-47. There are mm-hmm. you know few weapons that have such a very clear visual imprint as that banana-clipped yeah. weapon or even the switch from the M14 to the M16. Oh, yeah. I mean, just oh, yeah. that was... You know, they had their own flavor. I mean, yes, it intended to be utility, but there had to have been in the design. It's like, well, we want this to look cool, too. <laughs> yeah, maybe so. I know one of the tanks back then, it's not in service anymore, I don't think, but they called, it was called a Sheridan. Mm. It was a scout tank. It was small. And uh, the turret was really different. And it wasn't uh, symmetrical. It wasn't a perfect balance, if you look like from a bird's eye view of the turret, it was sort of off-centered from the main gun. Yeah. The gun was a very short gun, and uh, and it could shoot a heavy round, but the tank was light. And so I was talking to guys that just got back from Vietnam, and they said, yeah, well, you fire a, a, the main gun on a Sheridan, it'll take the first two road wheels off the ground. <laughs> he said, if you're on a, on a bank on the side of a hill and you rotate the turret up the hill, you shoot, you'll turn the tank over. <laughs> but it was a very difficult little tank to draw because it just wasn't, it didn't look the same on both sides until it was asymmetrical. But it looked like it wasn't to you. But just things like that, I just remember putting the memory in and um, to be able to draw it because you did not, I don't know, it was easier to memorize it and because you had to draw all these things all the time them to have to look it up every time you drew one. Yeah. And I think being, well, I took basic training at Fort Knox. I was in a, a combat engineer unit, armored combat engineer unit in Germany. And so I got to see all these tanks and weapons firing and doing everything. And, and so he had a good understanding, so it really helped me to illustrate for the military. But, I mean, that was sort of adventuresome in a way. But I got called down quite a few times by my boss. He's a great guy. And he would say, look, we're illustrating armor and army stuff. This is not a Rembrandt, okay? <laughs> <laughs> I would do a, you had to draw a pin link, maybe of an M60 firing over the hills and then the target real far away. Well, yeah. I would spend all the time inking that landscape in. I loved it. All these big landscapes and stuff. <laughs> so I was, he said, this is not a work of art. This is an instruction manual, okay? <laughs> it's lovely, but, you know. And then I had to go to Washington one time. To, they wanted to teach us to lay out books and, and uh, really be a book designer. 
and uh, they used some examples. They didn't know I was one, but I remember seeing this big slideshow. And some of the art that they used for the best examples was mine, mm-hmm. and some for the worst examples was mine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it wasn't that they say the art's beautiful, but it doesn't teach you a point here. You're too busy looking at the art. <laughs> so I took that as a compliment as well. <laughs> Absolutely. I think I would too. So, okay. So, so after the, uh, after this uh, stint with the army, I, I saw also you had worked with a couple of magazines, uh, heavy metal and national lampoon. Yeah. When I was working there, I got, I started getting published in national lampoon and, um, I knew at that time that National Lampoon owned heavy metal. And it, it had just come out. It hadn't been out for a year. And I think I had every heavy metal that was made then. It was published. And so I finished a fancy painting of my own. And I thought, this would be good for heavy metal. So I just sent the original painting in to, to National Lampoon and say, show this to the heavy metal guys. I didn't know how any of this worked. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And, uh, after about two weeks, I got a call. It was from somebody from Heavy Metal. They said, uh, we're going to use your painting on our the back cover of our first or second anniversary issue. I can't remember. It might have been second anniversary issue. And uh, I was all excited. And they said, but uh, next time, don't send your original in. Send a copy of it of some type. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so I said, well, I didn't know how it worked. He said, well, that's how it works. Okay. When you do a painting, send us a picture of it don't send the original painting probably got lost or damaged or something so did you always just well, kind of did you kind of interact with them via distance or were you ever close enough to see the craziness that no, reportedly happened uh, yeah I was in Kentucky all the time so and, and I, I didn't know I knew there was a thing called FedEx but I didn't think it it, it wasn't in our little town so when I mailed for the National Lampoon stuff, I'd have to send it regular mail, and they called me up one day, and they said, um, look, why don't you start using Federal Express? And I said, I don't think it's in my town. And Federal Express is probably three years old, then maybe, or something, I don't know. Yeah. And so I checked, and yeah, the FedEx truck came down the parkway, stopped at one place in town, and that was it. You had to be there when the truck was there, you know. And so I found out, when and where the truck went so I'd meet the truck there and give them the art to ship to New York uh, but now I was uh, uh, I always worked from Kentucky until TSR hired me and then I moved to Wisconsin so these are actually the stories you're going to have to start telling to the younger folks about days when you couldn't just get, get trucks yeah. to appear at the front of your house yes. no 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 way <laughs> <laughs> and if you mail it by US mail back then uh, you didn't know if it'd get there or not. And if it took a week, it took a week. If it took three days, it took three days. You didn't know, you know. And it might not get there in one piece. Mm. Everything's gotten a lot better now. The competition has made people better, you know, speed and safety of the package. So, also, one other thing about working at Fort Knox. I didn't get to go in the go vault at Fort Knox and actually see the gold. So really? One of the most fascinating things. That was back in 78, I think. The last time they toured, last year they let a tour go through Fort Knox. And that, you're not saying years when uh, the governor and some people from Washington this and that, that there was a rumor going on there was no gold at Fort Knox. And, uh, and uh, 
And I had to do, my boss came to me while I was working for Knox. He said, uh, there's a little job we need to do for the treasury department. You have to do it at home on your own time. And uh, he said, we're going to print a little booklet for him or something like that. And he said, I need some art in it. And I said, well, I guess. And he said, well, if you do it, you'll get a tour through the gold ball. Oh, I'd pass that gold ball all my life, you know. <laughs> Nobody got in there. So I'm like, yeah, I'll do it. So I went home and did it. And so it was all done in-house at the printing plant that I worked at. So the people that, that the printers, the guy that made the plates, were six of us that worked on the pamphlet. And they took us two at a time over a three-week period um, and to um, tour and see the gold. Everything was fascinating. I've never seen so much money and hmm. value in one place in my life. <laughs> so, so you'll have to tell me. Uh, in, in my dreams, you know, it's, it's all caused by the cartoons and movies I've seen. Seeing the stacks pyramid style of all the different bricks of gold, I have to imagine no, that was not accurate. No, it's like um, what was more impressive: the whole building is built around the vault itself. So when you go in, you're walking down halls of giant square hallway. Except in the back, it's bigger than there. There's a loading dock. Where they bring gold in or take it out. And um, and and they have, what was real impressive, these huge scales. Uh, looks like big, giant grandfather clocks encased in wood and glass. Really beautiful scales. Balancing scales. And each disc on each side, the balance is like big, round metal plates. I don't know if it's, it could be aluminum. I don't know, but they were like two or three inches thick. It's heavy duty hmm. stuff, and three big rods that support each plate that goes up to the balancing part. And he activated the scales and put some aluminum shavings in my hand, which I couldn't feel. I dropped them on the scale, and you saw the the thing move. And he said, "We don't waste gold dust here." <laughs> it's like God, that's and inside, it was just like a prison cell. You go inside, there's narrow halls. There's, I think, three floors. And um, it's just cell after cell after cell. I beside it, just like about, I'd say about 10, 12 foot deep and about six or eight foot wide. And you got big metal doors. And you got peepholes and stuff. And then there is um, paperwork on each one with a wire running from the door to the door seal with a wax seal so if it's open the, you know, the seal is broken and uh, I looked at one cell there and they got little lights you could look through a peephole and they turn a light on you could see stacks of gold bars hmm. and um, and I remember looking in and and I looked on the paperwork and at that that was whenever that gold was put in there it was based on $32 an ounce and, and at that time and 70 something it was, it was worth about 300 an ounce and I looked on the paperwork on the outside at 32 dollars an ounce and this cell was only a handful not even a handful and it was 93 million and at, at 90 at 32 dollars an ounce and so I tried to do the math in my head which I'm not good at you know at 300 dollars an ounce no there'd been a whole lot more yeah yeah that's that is but it crazy. was impressive and they had a crown jewels of Poland in there I saw those it's on sale that one they had uh, just in a cell with bars so you look in and see that real easy and then at the bottom of it there's a firing range where they practice shooting it was really neat 
in the basement. But it's it was a neat place. I'll tell you, you couldn't break into it. Now it's been revamped all techno, technological stuff now. So that if you're just walking, you know, 300 yards away, they know where you're at. You know? <laughs> they got you. Yeah. Not, not quite like the James Bond movies of yeah. before. I thought it'd be like that old James Bond movie. I saw that when I was a kid. And I thought, it'll be just like that. Well, it wasn't. Not at all. It was a whole <laughs> lot more secure. <laughs> uh, and all that time we was touring this, there was a guard. Always stayed. One guy was giving us a tour, an older gentleman. And there's a, there a young man, probably about 25, 30, uh, strong built, in a uniform, with a 45 on his hip, and the button unsnapped. And he always stayed about 10 or 12 feet away from us. So... And the guy gave me a tour. He said, yeah, he said, you don't touch anything in here, okay? He said, just don't try to touch anything because that's what he's for. And he will shoot you. <laughs> I said, okay, I won't touch nothing. <laughs> so afterwards, um, you said you went to Wisconsin. Yeah. I uh, Well, a friend of mine, when I was working at Fort Knox, we hired a new guy in. And... Um, he was only about 22 or 23, I guess. At that time, I was about 29 or 30, somewhere around in there. And um, and every lunch, uh, lunch hour, uh, some kids would come from high school and gather on his desk, and they was playing a game. And this guy, the new guy we hired, name was Vernon. He had long hair, a little bit of a goatee he looked just like Charles Manson <laughs> he really did <laughs> and uh, uh, he's a really nice guy though and uh, we started calling Manson and his family you know his little family come in they played some kind of games and one day asked us what are you playing he said Dungeons and Dragons I said I've heard of that game he said it's the best game that's ever been made I said really he said yeah we gotta play it sometimes well about six months go by and he finally talked us into playing the game and we were all there about the same age actually I was all the illustrators there some of them were straight out of the army you know Vietnam and stuff and some were never in the army but just got out of college and uh, so we was all pretty young and so we was ready to play the game he said well we gotta roll up characters I'm like what so <laughs> it took a week every hour to just roll up characters okay <laughs> every lunch hour yeah. And we're like, what kind of game is this? We haven't even played it yet. We've got a week invested in this and all this paperwork and weird dice. <laughs> and um, so finally he decided we're going to play. So it come down to the day, the lunch hour, we all sit down to play. And he said, I want to set it up. You all got your paperwork. You know who you are. I said, yeah, yeah. He said, all right, you're sitting on a riverbank. It's at night. You got a little campfire going. And um, what are you guys doing? And I think the wizard, well, uh, do I supposed to study my spell or something? He said, yes, that's good. Study your spell. And uh, he started, he come to me next. He said, what do you, I said, well, isn't that guy over there, uh, isn't Frank a thief? He said, yeah. I said, well, I'm going to kill a thief. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to keep it. So I rolled my dice and I'm trying to kill him and burn him and scream, you don't do that. Well, the, the thief, he starts rolling his dice to fight back and the wizard and, cleric was trying to break us up and uh 
Molly Burton said, you're, you work as a team. You need to be. Oh, we do? <laughs> I didn't want a thief in our crowd if we were going to go find treasures. Mm. And uh, so we started figuring out how it worked. We got to play about three or four periods before we got too busy and couldn't do it. But it was fascinating. I love the game. So Vernon, you know, he had, it was an old manual. So I guess it was a first edition stuff I don't always mm. play with. Mm-hmm. And um, he said, look at this art. It's not very good. He said, we can do better than that. And he said, Larry, you can do that. He said, some of your big oil paintings. You know, I've been painting fancy paintings, big ones and stuff. He said, man, they'd love to publish those. And I said, I think they must like that kind of artist. It's got more of a primitive look. And he said, no, I think this company has grown so fast. It's a bunch of people that does games that, that they don't even know what's about getting better artists. And he said, I'm going to send my samples. He said, I'll send some of your samples in. I said, well, I don't think it's going to work. So he took a few of my, I just had some 35 millimeter slides back then. That's what you used for portfolio. You couldn't just go print them off on your desktop or something, you know. Yeah. Uh, and so I gave him a little case of 35 millimeter slides, paintings I'd done in the last few years, all fantasy. So he sent those, and he sent some of his. But his stuff looked like um, 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 anime stuff. That's just how he drew. And this is before anybody had ever seen any anime stuff. Hmm. But he drew like that, sort of cartoony. Vernon did. And so about a week or two later, I got a call, and TSR wanted me to do a freelance job for him. And they didn't want Vernon's stuff. Well, he got pissed at me, for sure. <laughs> and... Um, so I did a little painting for them, and they liked it. And then they called me up, wanted me to fly up there and look at their company and stuff. And me and my wife, so we did. And I'm like, I don't know if I don't work for these people. They just want to hire me. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, I don't know if I'm going to work. I mean, the oldest person in there was like me and maybe Gary Gax and a couple more. <laughs> you know? yeah. Everybody else was teenagers or 20 years old. And I thought, I don't know. And the company was scattered all over Lake Geneva in different buildings. And so I told them no. I said, just let me freelance for you. I'm a GS9 now. I just built, just bought a new house. I was making, this was 1981, 80, 81. I was making about 20000 a year, which was good money back then. And it was good enough. You know, you could buy a new house, you know, yeah. three-bedroom brick house and garage and everything. And I'd just done that. And... Um, and so I said, no, I just freelance. Well, then about a week or two later, I got a call. Would you pick the president up, a president of our company up at Louisville Airport? He's wanting to see you and talk to you. Well, I'll pick him up. So <laughs> I did and brought him to our house. And like good Southern people, we bid him supper. And after we ate, Betty got the kids out and out of the room. She cleaned the dining room table up and fixed some coffee. And we sit there and. He got down to business. He said, what are you making right now? Um, Ed Bordox said, I'm making 20000 a year. He said, we'll double it. Hmm. I'm like, God bless. 40, you couldn't comprehend 40000 a year back then. <laughs> <laughs> I thought, 40000 I said, my wife works. And she was like a clerk in City Hall. And at that time, that was decent money for this little town. She'd make about 12000 a year. I said, she makes 12. And he said, we'll double hers. I said, she types us. God, she's an expert typer. 
<laughs> any clerical kind of stuff. So that's 64000 Jeez, Louise, man. That's like a million dollars. And I said, well, I just bought this house. He said, well, buy it and sell it for you. My and Lord. I looked at my wife, and she looked at me, and she she gave me that look. And I said, I guess you just bought yourself an artist. Jeez. <laughs> and they, in three months, they had a house waiting for me in Lake Geneva to rent. So I went to Wisconsin. And I knew Jeff Easley before. Uh, he was from Kentucky. I'd met him about two years before this. And we went to a little convention in Louisville, RiverCon, and uh, first convention I've been to. And uh, and so Jeff was married and had a little boy, and they went to New York. He's trying to freelance. And this isn't fantasy, the fantasy world. And it was hard back then. It wasn't that much done. And uh, he was struggling and working at a popcorn factory, carrying big bags of popcorn. It wasn't like you fix a little, little batch of popcorn. This was like, mass production popcorn, you know. Yeah. He worked himself to death and wasn't getting much published. It was hard. And he called me up and he said, I heard you went to work for that Dungeons and Dragons place. I said, Yeah, man, they I said, they'll hire you, they're looking for more artists. So I got Jeff set up and um he called me before he, he left they contacted him and said, Come down there and look I told them about Jeff and they said, Do you want to look at this art? And he said, What should I ask as a salary? I said, Forty thousand a year. <laughs> he said, "You're crazy. They're not gonna pay it. They're paying me that." I said, "Ask for forty thousand a year." And so he come down, did the interview with them. And he, they flew him down. They flew him back to New York. I didn't get to see him while he was there. And um, and so when he uh, Jim Rosloff, he was uh, I guess you'd call him art director. He was like, he was a, had the title of art director, but he was a great designer, just an all-around great guy. And he let us do what we thought we should do on covers. You know, he didn't really tell you what to do, but he would help you out if you was on the wrong track. He was a great guy. He came in and he said, your friend, Jeff Beasley, he said, uh, we asked him what kind of salary he wanted. I said, well, what did he say? I was expecting 40000 He said, oh, about 11000 would be good. <laughs> <laughs> he said we decided to give him 17 anyway to start him off and said he liked to faint it <laughs> and, then, and he said um, of course we'll raise him up to you after, after he gets here and see how he does and we'll pay him the same thing as you're getting I said that's great so that's how Jeff got out there that's awesome and, uh, it was pretty cool but but then we I mean I went to work I mean the first day they, I was doing art just about you know right off the bat and the first dragon I ever painted was there for one of their products. Okay. So I hadn't really thought about painting dragons. I was still painting barbarians and Celts and Vikings. <laughs> yeah. So so you're saying you're saying that they when they were giving you well, I don't know if assignments is the right word, but when they're having you make this art that did they not have like a general like, well, this is kind of what we want. Go with it or well, they, they say would, just be if crazy. It was, um, uh, for a game, they just tell if it's some kind of a game. Like I did Star Frontiers pretty early. And uh, I thought, I was all excited about doing Star Frontiers. I thought it would be hardcore sci-fi. You know? yeah. I was all ready for that. Because I, I was really good at machinery. I mean, at TSR, I mean, at Fort Knox, I would work from spy photographs, uh, blurry, fuzzy spy photographs. And I had to draw T-62s or something like that, or a T-64. And I learned how to fake it to look real, you know. Mm. And uh, where you could recognize the T-62 if you saw one in the field. 
this is before this when everything was hush hush nobody showed anybody what they had yeah. and so I, I was doing you know a lot of uh, Star Wars had come out and I I was freaked out with Star Wars I was doing a lot of science fiction drawings and stuff designing equipment and um, so I was all excited about Star Frontiers and they I was going to do some drawings I was ready for it and they said well this is not as serious as you think it is I said well what kind of aliens what are the aliens an alien didn't come out the movie Alien I said oh, man I got a pet or something after the alien you know something so like that because that's the scariest thing I've ever seen yeah. And they said, well, our aliens is like a monkey man, and there's like a praying mantis man. There's like a little Pillboy Doughboy. Like, what the crap is that? You know? <laughs> and I just, the, the wind went out of my sail. Like, oh, crap, you know? And uh, it's more of a, a little bit of a tongue in cheek kind of a thing, I guess. And so well, I did the Starfire Tears, and I'm like, oh, okay. And, um, but then I kicked off the Endless Quest book series, the Pick a Pass books, what do you call them? And I did the first, I think, five or six covers of those. And then uh, I don't know, some of my first jobs I did there. Uh, it was it was fun though. I enjoyed it. It was the most wonderful place to work that you could dream of. So much creativity between the the artists, the writers, the game designers. It was crazy, and everybody was young. Uh, I was an old guy. I was 30, 32, I think. Uh, when I went in there, 31 or 32. And compared to the rest, just some of the management was my age or a little bit older. Mm-hmm. But everybody else was like teenagers. I know the head of our computer department. Of course, computers were in the infancy then. Um, but they, I remember them having his first his 21st birthday party there. I was like, man, that's young to be a computer dude, you know. <laughs> and uh, he was the head of the computer department. Of course, the computers, you know, they had to be iced down almost and everything else, and they couldn't do much, but we were already looking into gaming in that direction, you know. But our ideas were ahead of what could be done then. We'd talk about doing just what they're doing today. This is in 81. But you couldn't do it then. Not yeah. with the computers on the market that we knew about. Yeah, you were you were still kind of in the in the realm of like Zork. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. walk into a room, what do you yeah, do? Yeah, that was it. Uh, but it was it was a great place to work and, and I got lucky and done the old red box cover, which somebody asked me the other day, said, How many products do you know that's got the same cover for forty years? Well, Monopoly. And he said, no, I think they've changed that time. I said, well, what? I couldn't think of it. Campbell Soup can't. Got the same look. He said, no. He said, he said D&D. That Red Dragon's been the cover for, I think, he said, 40 years? Down around 40 years. Same mm-hmm. cover, the basic D&D. Holy cow, I can't believe that. Yeah. <laughs> That's got to be some kind of record. <laughs> <sighs> so, okay, so... You you were in TSR doing this art, but you kind of yeah. took you kind of took a greater role as you went along. Um, yeah. So, just thinking about the Dragonlance side of things, yeah. how, how much how much of that originated with the, the the imagination that you had for the artwork, and how much was what kind of collaborative process was that to create that particular series? Okay. 
Uh, I went to work for TSR in 81. And I think it was around Christmas of 81 or right after Christmas in 82. I think it was maybe in the late fall of 81. They hired, they hired um, uh, Tracy Hickman. Young guy comes in, new game designer. And uh, so he'd been there a while. So I know it was in the winter time. And so it had to be like maybe the winter of 82. Tracy and Harold Johnson came to me and said, we've got something we want to talk to you about, but it's got to be done on off hours, not here at the company. And I said, okay. He said, uh, and they had another name for it, and it wasn't called Dragonlance at that time. And so I said, well, come over to my house at night. I had a house with a basement. I had a studio in the basement, so I worked at home then, too. I worked 24 hours a day painting. <laughs> so they came to my house one night about 8, eight o'clock, stayed about midnight or more. And uh, Tracy told me the story of Dragonlance. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, that's great. That's, it reminds me of Lord of the Rings. And uh, I said, it's, it's a neat story. It's just an epic story. And he said, well, we got to sell it to the board of directors because at that time, the only fantasy world TSR had was Greyhawk. And I think Gary got a personal royalty off of anything sold under Greyhawk. And so he didn't really want another fantasy game to compete, a fantasy world to compete with Greyhawk. So it was, wasn't going to be an easy sell. We had to sell it to the whole board of directors. And he said, so when we make our presentation, whenever that's going to be, he said, could you do some art uh, so we can sort of show some rough stuff? And the way they talked to him, I thought it was going to be like in a week. So, I man, I just done to, I done three or four pieces really fast. Hmm. And the first two was bigger than the last two was smaller. Because, but then it was like three years later before they were – he got to present it to the board of directors. Wow. <laughs> so I could have taken my time, but I didn't know that. And uh, But Dragonlance was always there trying to push it. Finally, found the right time. And uh, I went to the board meeting when they did that, and Tracy gave a talk, and he used what art I'd done as like the little place to show what Dragonlance could be about. And, uh, and so since I would talked about it, more than any artist. Well, I was, they'd already told me a story before some of the artists was hired. And, uh, and at that time, Tracy was hired in as a game designer, not a, not a writer. And so they needed, um, and he didn't claim to be that much of a writer. He, he was more in the game design, but he had this big epic story. So when they hired Margaret Weissam, um, she had been an editor and stuff and they liked her writing samples. So he married, Margaret up with Tracy. He was the ideal guy. She would write it. And I think as it went along, Margaret loved it right off the bat. And so as Harold Johnson, which was Tracy's boss at that time, Tracy and me and Margaret. And Margaret's um, boss, I think it was Gene Raby, um, were all fired up about Dragonlance. And... Uh, and nobody else really knew much what it was. And finally, we got to go ahead to do it. And uh, I argued that they should do the books first and then start doing modules. But TSR didn't want to do that because 
Dragonlance, nobody knew what it was, so they wanted to do some modules on Dragonlance first. I said, well, that don't make sense. I mean, it's all about the story, the book. And I said, how are you going to, what's people going to come up with a module called Dragonlance? What does that mean to them? It's nothing. And, um, but anyway, they decided to do the modules first. So the first couple of modules, they went out there and just died, you know, because people didn't know what it was. And, um, then they decided to do the books and get them out there. Well, distribution wasn't distributing to bookstores. And it was, hobby shops was only getting like one or two in every now and then. And so he's going to kill it off because the books wasn't selling and, um, and the modules didn't go crazy and sell a lot. So well, people don't know what this is. So they, Margaret and Jean Raby pulled some tricky stuff and act like they were hobby shop owners and they called Random House or somebody and said, we want, uh, we want books in our store, you know. Or I think one was supposed to like a bookstore or something. People were asking about these books, Dragonlance, and you're supposed to be distributing them, but they can't get them in the stores. And so, anyway, they started to distribute them to all the stores. And then they caught on and started selling, and it wouldn't, and right before they was going to kill the books, it just exploded. And then the modules exploded because now they knew what it was about. Good backstory. So it, it was, I know Tracy had to go to bats three times, Tracy and Margaret, with the board directors to keep them from killing it off. Still, but. that, that uh, anybody that hasn't read it, that was such such a formative piece, at least for me. And, you know, yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, any good story. Well, it, was, it was like Lord of the Rings was easy reading. Yeah. Because, I mean, I was in college, and the guy that brought Lord of the Rings to me and The Hobbit, he said, uh, these are good books, but, it's like Dickens, man. It's not easy to read. Not like that Conan book. <laughs> and, uh, and sure enough, it wasn't an easy read. You know, oh, Tolkien to spend four pages talking about a hillside. <laughs> you know, I'm 19, 20 years old. Like, piss on the hillside. I want action. <laughs> <laughs> but I was still hooked in the books. And yeah. so with Dragonlands, it was more of a, a quicker read. You know, you yeah. got into action pretty quick and stuff, you know. Oh, and it was... Uh... It was one of my earliest, uh, my earliest um, interactions with a series that would be able to take such a fun direction to take a heroic character and show yeah. the slide into the evil side of things, and yeah. without making them just you know the the flat bad guy, having it be nuanced. Yeah. I loved that. Yeah. Uh, now they, I know when Margaret started writing, she said, you know, she fell in love with Raceland, and. Uh, it got to be the point when, you know, it was Tracy's idea for the whole story, but Margaret gave it life. And um, then they worked on it together. He'd try to keep going the story. They would read, and as the story would take a direction, Tracy was great coming up with ideas for what could happen. And um, he's almost like storyboarding it in his mind, you know. <laughs> and um, and Margaret, and they, they would just work together on it. And... Uh, until they, they they just knew what the characters going to do by themselves. They didn't really have to. They just it took us. It's got it. It got its own life, you know. Just, yeah. You sort of followed followed the characters in. And it was pretty neat. Really neat. Yeah, it still it still even resonates or not resonates, but it still even has a you know a, a, a following today. So, so what what caused you to kind of move on from TSR? Well. 
My wife worked there. I worked there making good money. Keith Parkinson's wife worked there. He worked there making good money. But by the mid-'80s, we knew that TSR was a company that laid, it was a goose that laid the golden eggs. And so somebody, you know, when it's laying golden eggs, everybody wants to own the goose. Hmm. So the war started on who owns the goose, you know, and the upper uh, echelon of, of the, the, I don't know, the VPs and everything else, owners, who's going to own it? Hmm. And so the war broke out between all that fighting on stocks and who gets control and who's going to get kicked out. And and for like Keith and myself and some other artists, we had all of our eggs in one basket, you know, TSR's basket. And we also had little spies also at the company uh, and shipping and everything. We knew how much product was being sold worldwide um, every month. And we knew what was selling. We knew that, that D&D and Dragonlance was selling like gangbusters. But then management decided... You know, making these games, they're just easy. You know, they weren't game designers, they were management. But they got into making games and having great ideas, which cost the company money. We lost tons of money on making stupid games that weren't going to sell. We knew they wouldn't sell. They'd have company meetings, and I would, all the artists would, like you tell them, Larry, we'll be right behind you. And lots of time I'd speak up and they didn't say a word. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I was like, this is stupid what we're doing, you know. And pretty soon they wouldn't hardly, when I'd raise my hand, they wouldn't hardly um, respond to me. I'd just keep on waving my hand like a crazy person. They'd be like, okay, Larry, what do you want to say? And then we got a, uh, a marketing department in. And, and the guy, they probably might introduce anybody, introducing him to all the employees. And, he comes into the art room. We all worked in one big room, all artists. So he walks over, what I'm painting on, looking at said, So you're a new um, marketing guy, huh? He said, yeah. I already knew that he's paying about 100000 a year. And uh, I said, you ever play D&D? He goes, no. I said, you ever want to play? He goes, no. <laughs> I said, so you're a marketing expert, huh? Said, yeah, I know marketing. After he left, I gave him a hard way, but after he left, I told the guy, I said, we're, we're screwed, man. <laughs> <laughs> this is a new marketing genius that paid him 100000 a year, and he never even wants to play the game. So how can you market a product you don't even know and don't want to know? And uh, so about a few months after that, well, about a month or so after that, he's having a, a big company meeting. And I, asked, I raised my hand and they finally called on me, and I said, so I started bad-mouthing the marketing department, you know. <laughs> and uh, and they, at that meeting, they were saying, you know, our marketing department has told us that fantasy is dead, and D&D has not, not much of a future left. It's used up, and really fantasy is going by the wayside, and other games are going to be coming. And we were all consumers of what we were doing. We played D&D. And it wasn't dead. My God, it's the greatest game ever made. It was not dead. And we was breaking records every year, you know. And how can you say it's going to die? And I made the comments about that, you know, said my piece. Then about another two or three months later, the next company meeting said, well, we've gotten rid of the 
marketing department. (laughs) 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 And I don't know where they found out that he was stupid, but they did. (laughs) I I hate to say stupid, but he didn't know what we're, you know. He was not in the industry. He was not. And you had to feel fancy at that time. It had to be in your blood. Mm. Everybody there had been in the fantasy already to some degree and loved it. And they had a feel for Like I said, there was a population of young people that was ready for fantasy. And if you were really in touch with people and the age I grew up in and what all happened in our country and the politics and everything, the war, you were ready for an escape, but adventure too. Yeah. And, and you could feel it. If you had any sense at all, creativity, you could feel that feeling. And only some people did, and everybody at TSR felt it, except management, of course. Yeah. Uh, they could care less about fantasy. They never, they didn't know what it was, didn't care what it was, it just made them money. Yeah, more about and, creating um, wealth than a story. Yeah, and so with all that going on, them fighting over the company and everything, I, I told Keith, Keith was worried too, I said, I'm going to get out of here. I'm going to freelance. And all the time I work for TSR, I freelance on the side, not to competitors. I, when I first got there, they had me sign up because you will not do artwork for any competitors of us, but you can do artwork for other things. So I signed that contract. And then about a year or two later, they come out and you can't do, they kept limiting what we could do. Mm. And I, but I never would sign it. I was three or four times they would say, did you bring your paper back in? Did you take it over and sign it? Read it? I said, yeah, but it's at home. I forgot. And I keep stalling. You know, the cat ate it, the dog ate it. We didn't even have cats and dogs, but every excuse in the world. And I never did sign anymore. Just that one that I would not work for any competitor. And I didn't. I did everything else. I did, I did toy packaging for Willow. I did toy packaging for Thundercats. I was doing everything back then. Uh, I did model car boxes for, I think it was uh, for Aurora models. I did Elvira's car model car box. I did uh, I did some Thunder uh, He-Man stuff for, uh, for models. Uh, a T-62 for, uh, for a company in Chicago that did military models. Um, nice. I just doing all kinds of stuff on the side and making, you know, I was matching my salary on the side. Of course, I was working 16 hours a day at least or more, and um, the weekends too, just about. And uh, of course, I was young and full of energy, and uh, about worked myself to death. Didn't know it till later. At 40, I had a stroke. Um, but anyway, um, I was working my buds off, and I so I knew when I when I quit TSR, I had full-time job freelancing and I got Keith going helped him out getting freelance work and I helped Jeff out too getting freelance work and um, but Jeff he's not a risk taker at all and Clyde wasn't much of a risk taker so they'd rather work there for a salary and uh, I said I'm going and Keith said I'm going with you so Keith and I quit I didn't think the company would last two more years or three years. I remember telling my wife, it won't last another three years. It's going to be sold or something. And it, it hung on for five years but um, before it was sold. But by then, it, was, it wasn't even the same company. It doesn't seem like that was working for those last years. 
Um, you know, and, and when I quit, the first year I quit, they, they kept giving me work. I signed a contract with TSI. I wouldn't do any competitor work, like role-playing game artwork, mm-hmm. for a year. And so I didn't. And then the first thing I did, when I, the first thing I did for a role-playing company after my year was up, I said a uh, shadow rug. Oh awesome. yeah. And uh, but uh, but yeah, we thought the company was was it did go, and we knew it was going to be sold, and we didn't know who would get it or what. It was just it just future looked bleak at the time, and and every time we turned around, there was more bad news from management. Them suing each other fighting and you know the balloons were gone then Gary was gone and then Lorraine ran it and, and she was mean <laughs> <laughs> she's a big woman and scary I'm a little guy <laughs> uh, I know one time she was pissed at me when I did go freelance I was going to Gen Con and Lorraine was tall and big woman she, you know you wouldn't want to fight her Okay, <laughs> and she had a meeting countenance about her too. So I was sitting in my little booth at Gen Con. And I'd been I'd quit working for TSR for about three years by now. I mean, I was at Gen Con, yeah, Gen Con, sitting up. And she comes walking up to aisle. This is before the convention started. This sit up day, and she walked me. She's, I need to talk to you. I'm like, oh God, the way she said it. <laughs> what I do? Okay, what? And she said. I'd done some, Gary had worked with another company and did a new little game. Can't remember the name of it, but I did the first two covers for it. Uh, it was another role-playing company. And she said, uh, and I'd heard I'd been blackballed by TSR, and I didn't like that. Um, I didn't want to do a lot of work for TSR, but I wanted to do some because they owned the rights to your art. Yeah. And... And I didn't want them to own the rights to all my art. And uh, that's one of the reasons I quit, too. And uh, so I said, I'm blackballed. Well, I knew something was up, and I'd heard rumors of that. And she said, yeah. I said, well, why? She said, all right, we paid Gary a whole lot of money when when she took over the business. For him, not, and he signed a contract not to do any role-playing games for any other company. And I said, no. You did? Yeah, I said, I didn't know about this. She said, well, he has done exactly that. And you've done the covers. Mm. I said, well, I "I didn't know. I said, I had no idea. I said, I'm just a freelancer here trying to live, okay? I've got two kids and a wife and mortgage payments and everything else. I'm just trying to live. And um, I said, I didn't know any. Nobody told me anything about that. She said, well, it's the truth. We might have to sue Gary. And uh, I said, well, I don't want to be sued by anybody. I said, I won't do any more. I didn't know that. I won't do it. But I said, I can work for competitors, right? And she said, yeah, as a freelance artist, but not if Gary's not supposed to be doing any role-playing games, Mm. at least for another company. And so I said, okay. So I got back on the good side of it a little bit then. And, uh, but I was scared. (laughs) (laughs) And the the day I quit, I had to go and tell her I was going to quit. I was scared. I weighed about, oh, 120 pounds, soaking wet. I'm about 5'6", the tallest I've ever been. I'm shrinking a bit now. I think I'm (laughs) 5'5". But anyway, (laughs) 
she, I'm sitting in the chair in front of her desk, and she's standing up behind there. Well, she was sitting there talking to me. She didn't like me quitting at all. And um, so she gets up and walks around, and she's standing over me. And, and I could tell she's a little pissed. I thought, what's she going to do, smack me in the back of the head? She'll knock me clean out of this chair, you know? <laughs> <laughs> like, I was a little nervous, you know, because I, I, I went in there. I had to tell her I had to give her two weeks' notice, okay? And she already knew about it when I come in she was I think she was just told and she was pissed and so she kept telling me different things she said how much money do you think you can make uh, working on your own a freelancer uh, she said uh, can you make more than what you're making here I said yeah she said you think you can make 80,000 a year I said I think I could she said I, I don't see how in the world you can make 80000 a year on your own freelance. I said, I think I can. <laughs> and she kept on fussing like that. I said, so I pull the old American dream thing. I said, look, I'm an artist. I believe that we should do our best to get ahead in this old world. And and don't I have the right to, to be on my own and try to make it the best I can, you know, and not work where somebody tell me what to do. I want to do my own thing. She looked at me a while like, you're crazy. <laughs> and she said, well, go ahead. I just don't think you'll make it. And, uh, but I did. <laughs> I was going to say, I'm glad she was wrong. Yeah. Yeah. So, but, um, so yeah. okay. So we obviously, I've got tons more to ask. Yeah. Could we maybe do a second interview coming up here yeah. and make this kind of a two-parter? We haven't, we haven't done that with one of our guests yet. Continue on. I don't and maybe, care. Maybe go with. We got to catch the right date now. Um, I don't know what's going to happen the rest of this week. I know uh, we are going to the funeral home and have to go to a funeral. Um, and um, I have to go to a chiropractor three days a week because after forty years of painting myself to death, my shoulder blew out on me. So I have to go to one three days a week to keep my shoulder working. So I paint. Yeah, that's uh, so very important. So it might have to be uh, one night next week's probably. Now, let me, yeah, because I don't know what's going to happen next couple of days. I live in a rural area. Everybody knows everybody. Uh, I'm in a small town and had a cousin that just got killed today. He was about my age in a car wreck, and his son was with him, and he almost got killed too. Mm. And uh, so there's going to be family get togethers and a funeral. All this kind of stuff, but I yeah. don't know what's going to happen. But next week should be back to normal week again. Well, yeah, that would be just just fine with us. My uh, okay, I know my schedule is uh, fairly fairly decent next week. It's uh, yeah. That's I just got to try to finish a painting before the Lexicon or Lexicon. That's in Pennsylvania. It's the convention where they sort of bring artists and collectors together, like traditional painters like me. Yeah, and. Uh, I've got to get a painting done before that. I, I I haven't been able to go for the last seven years because every painting I've started is sold. <laughs> and so, so I'm thought. So I started right after Gen Con. I've done one painting, and then I'm finishing this painting if I can get it done in time. So at least I have two paintings taken show and possibly sell. And I've got I think another little painting or two that I might take up there. So at least, because I like going to Luxicon. You see a lot of artists. They get to talk and shoot the breeze. And a lot of artists you haven't seen for a few years. It's fun. 
and I just missed going, but but I couldn't go up and didn't have anything to even show, you know. Yeah. Well, uh, so well hopefully I, you'll I get this. Yeah, I just got to get this painting done before then. So that's all I'm really concentrating on. And um, and I, the way it looks like is I'll make it. Well, good. Um, and um, so, yeah, we can do this one day next week. Well, perfect. How about I uh, shoot you an email, and I promise yeah. to be much better in my description in the yeah. email of the timing. Yeah, <laughs> and, yeah. And, yeah the dates, time, and stand. where are you guys at? We're in Indiana. We're in Bloomington. Oh, well, you're on you're on. Eastern time, right? Right, yep. right. Yeah. So I'm an hour behind you. Yeah. But uh, I'll, uh, I'll I'll shoot you an email with what times work for us, and you just kind of pick okay. what works for you best, and we'll uh, okay. we'll get going that way. Because this has just been a lot of fun. We love we love the the the, the story aspect. Stories. Yep. Absolutely. Well, I tell you, my wife says you're getting worse than your grandpa. Are you see. You can tell so many stories. Well, when you're 70 years old and you're about pretty full and hard, you got a lot of stories yeah, to tell. Stories. Because when I was a kid, I think what got me in the pants yard, too, is, um, well, uh, right after World War, I was born in 48. So the war ended in 46. So my dad come home from the Army and married my mom. And we moved to Louisville. They had jobs there. And, uh, I think my mom worked at Brown Hotel or something, which was the hotel in Louisville at the time. It's where all the movie stars came for Derby. Hmm. And so my parents, they're both, they're both rural people. They uh, they got to see another kind of life, you know, and city and movie stars and everything. And, and, um, and so that they always taught me, you know, to go out there and do your best. There's more to it than just this little, you know, well, you know, stuck right here in one place, and yeah. so that um, that really inspired me. But I grew up with them when I was born. My dad got tuberculosis from World War Two, uh-huh. and he was sent to a TB sanitarium, and he was gone for about most of the first nine years of my life. And my mom and I lived in a little four-room house down under a hill in the country, and. With no electricity, well, most people in the country then didn't have much like, you know, no electricity, no running water. I learned to draw on, on old grocery, brown grocery bags on a dining table. Not dining, we just had a kitchen table. Um, we didn't have a dining room. On the kitchen table, under a kerosene lamp. We didn't, and uh, so uh, I've got stories like that I, I just had a good memory of, of things and and I was always aware of the times changing things different you know so maybe that's where I get all my yodas and shit stories from <laughs> about everything you know, <laughs> you know it's kind of kind of funny just uh, to, to not to go in this direction but you know with all the different stuff that we see every day in the media and all the stuff that kind of divides us apart the thing that yeah. brings us together are these stories is the yeah. thing that helps you remind helps to remind you that the people around you are people and and yeah. to, to kind of relate to the, the things that are going on. Yep. Yeah. And even myself, I mean, like I said I grew up in rural Kentucky basically, but we lived in Louisville. We moved to Louisville another time when I was like in the third grade. We was there for a year or so. And um, we got a little house, just a pretty little house rented. And it was... Um, 
if you want to block east of us, it was all white block. You want to block west of us, it was all black block. And if you, on our block, there was just mixed black and whites lived. And so, and this was in the 50s. And uh, and so my friends that I played with were black and white both. And to me, kids were kids. Everybody was the same. Right. And my parents weren't prejudiced people. And so when the late 50s, they started talking about what was happening in Alabama and everything, the races and stuff, I didn't even know that there was, you know, um, discrimination. I didn't, until my parents told me that when I was about 9, 10 years old, 11. And I was shocked, you know. And and, um, and all these things, I just remember so much of how everything was back then. And now I look today and like, oh my God, I, I'm a dinosaur. <laughs> <laughs> I remember my great-grandfather, he died when, he was 94, 96, 96 years old, I think. He died in 1956 or something. In 1955, and I was about five years old then, or a little bit over six. I remember him, a little short guy with a big handlebar mustache and wore one of those old gray uh, hats that old men wore. Flat cap? And, huh? The flat cap? <laughs> no, he wore uh, the old, like a gangster hat. Oh, yeah. Fedoras. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just old gray ones, say, all, all the old men back then wore. He had a big handlebar mustache, little guy. And I remember him talking to me and stuff, and I found out, uh, my dad told me, he said, uh, you should have him to tell you about when he was little, he said, he remembered the Civil War troops coming home when he's about three years old. Wow. Like, God bless, I met a man and talked to a man that remembered the Civil War troops coming home. And, uh. That's crazy. And, I, and my dad, he was giving up for death several times for tuberculosis. He's alive today. He's 94 years old. And mom's 89. <laughs> still going. I hope I got some of their genetics in me. <laughs> oh, you're not kidding. Yeah. I think the same thing. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate yeah, you, you talking to us. Yeah. Um, this is this is the best part of my week anytime I get to talk to somebody. So I, I really appreciate it. Well, I appreciate you doing it. It's it's fun, and I just like to tell stories like this. And so people today, the artists and the creative people today, I hope they can see that they've got a big heads up in some ways. But there's a lot more competition for them these days, too. Yeah, a little bit. Because with, with all the technology, you can take somebody that's not very talented, but they can do music, they can do art, they can do all sorts of things. Yeah, you couldn't. In the old days, you had to learn it and do it with your hands. And uh, and if you could make it that way, you're proud of yourself. You know? <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. You, you have yeah. something you could stand behind. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Somebody give you a pencil and said, "Draw me something." You could sit down and do it <laughs> right <laughs> on the spot. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I'll let you go. Well, thank you, Mr. Amor. No, no, no.